Welcome to Axis Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Faced with climate change, the rise of the 1% and a 24-7 work culture, many Americans now more than ever are yearning for the simple life. Organic eating continues to gain popularity and minimalistic tiny houses seem to be popping up in every direction. But why? And is it actually possible not only to walk away from modern conveniences on which we become dependent, but to adopt a sustainable, ethical, and authentic way of life? Those are questions treated in Mark Sundin's new book, The Unsettlers, In Search of the Good Life in Today's America. Mark Sundin's uh, book, uh, Sparked by a Personal Quest, traces the search for the simple life through stories of new pioneers, what inspired each of them to look for or create a better existence. Mark Sundin is author of several books, including The Man Who Quit Money, and he has taught fiction and nonfiction in the MFA creative writing programs in the University of New Mexico and Southern New Hampshire University. He's a contributing editor at Outside, and he and his wife divide their time between Fort Collins, Colorado, and Moab, Utah. He joins us ahead of a couple events in Utah. Mark Sundin, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us. Uh, Mark Sundin, I should mention, will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Thursday. That event starts at 7 p.m. And then the next day, Friday, at Back of Beyond Books in uh, in Moab. Um, I want to uh, uh, start, uh, Mark Sundin, with... Um, well, first of all, uh, today as I uh, uh, was uh, coming to work, it was, it's, it's bitterly cold here in, uh, in Logan anyway. And I uh-huh. uh, thought of a quote from uh, Olivia, one of the people you, uh, you treat. Uh, she lives in De- Detroit, right. organic farming there. And she described uh, Detroit, uh, the winters there, as being uh, less white Christmas and more Donner Party. That uh, <laughs> I thought was a great line. I remembered that today as I was <laughs> coming to work. <laughs> Yeah, I hope it doesn't come to that in Logan. I, I hope uh, not. Yeah. No, it's, it's pretty sunny over here on the front range today. Oh, oh yeah, well, good, so. good. Yeah, enjoy it. You're 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 coming to some some cold, I think. Here, uh, of course, you you spend some time still in Moab, do you? I do. I don't live there full time, but I I still have my trailer there, and uh, I I moved to Moab in '93, so it's really been my my main home for the past 20 years. Although currently. Uh, we're not there full time. Well, I want to uh, start with you. You uh, you, you uh, follow some people uh, looking for, I think you call it a life of radical simplicity. I want to talk about that. But you uh, grew up in uh, California, but uh, pretty soon looked for an escape uh, into, uh, uh, ended up in, I think, uh, the, the Canyonlands of Utah and, and as a river guide, and uh, then in Alaska. What uh, What were you looking for, do you think? Well, growing up in L.A., I, uh, I started rock climbing out in Joshua Tree in Yosemite Valley, and I was always just drawn to that vagabond life of living in the van and, and not having a job. And as I got a little older, and like in my early 20s anyway, I decided to pursue that dream, and which is how I ended up in southern Utah, as you say, uh, working as a guide. And, yeah, I just uh, have often felt that, that the sort of options provided to us in terms of career, uh, ended up doing work that I didn't like and uh, doing work that, that felt meaningless, just chasing the dollar, um, being surrounded by beeping machines and a lot of piles of paperwork. And I was, have always been trying to find a way to get out of that. You say, you write here early in the book, uh, tried as it sounds, backpacking made me understand my essence. How so? Well, I worked for 10 years as a, a backpacking and 
mountaineering guide for Outward Bound, and I did a lot on my own. It's just the idea that you only carry with you uh, what you need, and anything extra is um, not just a luxury, but it's actually uh, a hindrance because it weighs you down. Uh, so all of those, you know, if you add up all the nights, it was probably years of, uh, of nights I spent outside walking around Alaska and southern Utah. Um, there's just something beautiful in being self-sufficient and not having any extraneous items and uh, just surviving on what you need, that, that simplicity. And so you lived that way for uh, for quite a while. <clears throat> I just want to read this paragraph. <clears throat> then you said at a certain point, you said, I didn't want to live like that anymore. I wanted to cook my meals indoors, eat them at a table, no more powdered milk, powdered potatoes, powdered whatever, no more snowballs. I was ready for toilet paper. A month later, I sat in a cubicle writing copy for a political campaign, and when I felt my unkempt beard kept me from being taken seriously, I shaved it. Bought a pair of office shirts at a mall. Seemed so innocent at the time, but the comfortable life is the slippery slope toward the consumer life. So you'd, you'd join more conventional America, but uh, I think we're uncomfortable. Uh, what, what was the discomfort? Yeah, the, I mean, there was two there. The, the second one, I guess, that you mentioned was um, just once you start getting into an office job, and even if you're doing work that you like, you know, you start to feel the need for more material comfort and for more vacation. And if you're going to be commuting in a car every day, you think, well, I need to have a nicer car because I'm spending two hours a day inside this car. So that was one sense of discomfort, was noticing that I was starting to accumulate things, which maybe I didn't really want, but I felt uh, that I guess my wants were increased because I was sitting in, a, in an office all day. And the second thing, you know, I was writing about... Uh, or uh, working on the Howard Dean campaign in that cubicle. And I did feel at that moment that I was really uh, fighting for what I believed in. I was really opposed to the war in Iraq, and I wanted to stop that. But at the end of the day, I often felt terrible in, in the sense that I'd been you know, eating pizza in my cubicle all day and never going outside, never averting my eyes from a computer screen. And then also at the end of that campaign, you know, we lost. We didn't stop the war. We didn't defeat President Bush. So I wondered uh, if my work had actually been as uh, useful or uh, as good as I thought it was. You say you've had a, a, a long-term fascination with dropping out, and uh, of course, this is you know it's not a new concept, um, it, and it's connected up with people looking for you know a, a better life. You could uh, you could say you could use the word utopia, I suppose. What uh, yeah. for? For you, what what is well, was dropping out mean? You know, when I started writing this book, I did think it was going to be a book about dropouts, maybe about you know, like some of those rock climbers I had known who lived in their vans, or you know, maybe that sort of classic type of the, the Unabomber up in a cabin in Montana, uh, living like a hermit. But as I did the research over the past four years, I became less interested in people who were dropping out, and more interested in people who were actually engaged in society and actually trying to rebuild society, maybe make alternative food systems or economic systems. Uh, the dropouts who I met, you know, I, I finally started to realize that in some ways they weren't doing much for the world. Um, they, and in this day, you can live off the grid, but you can still commute to a job or you can telecommute. You can literally be trading stocks on Wall Street from 
from your off-grid palace in a mountain somewhere. And it seemed to me that the off-grid commuter was just a suburbanite who had a longer driveway. Mm. <laughs> so, so not not authentic in the way you were looking for. No, it wasn't um, authentic in the in the sense of were these people uh, actually trying to change the the problems that we have? Were they trying to engage with them? You know, I think a generation ago, if you lived off the grid, that was almost a you were you were dissenting right there because you were clearly cutting yourself off from the mainstream economy. But now with the the, the technological advances in the way you can live off the grid. Uh, that that's not really the case anymore, and so I became less interested in people who were merely off the energy grid, and more interested in people who were were off the economic grid, which is to say, mm. they were building local economies, or um, doing small scale agriculture, or working on the gift economy, and not being plugged into Wall Street and the oil and gas industry and the industrial food system. And that's. Uh Getting off the economic grid, that's much more difficult, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, the economy has its tentacles everywhere. It is. And, you, you know, you, when you start to uh, pull the thread on your basic material needs, the whole sweater comes unraveled, <laughs> by which I mean, you know, if you say, I don't want to use gasoline because I don't like the way that ExxonMobil is, is treating the world, you, know, you start to realize that almost everything you touch is either manufactured by petroleum or certainly delivered to your house by petroleum. So it's really hard to get out of that. And, and the same thing with, with, with Wall Street and the big banks. You know, you might hate um, what they do and you might vote against them and you might call your congressman. But for me, I realized that each month I was writing a big check to Bank of America for my mortgage and I'm thinking, wow, you know, I claim to be against Wall Street and against the 1%, and yet here I am, their, their biggest customer. Mm. So I had to start thinking in ways of, of you know, how can you actually disassociate, disassociate from these, as you say, tentacles of, of the economy. Uh, one of the quotes at the beginning of your book is Albert Camus. And he says, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. I immediately thought of a previous book, uh, The Man Who Quit Money, uh, Daniel Suelo, that, who lives, I think, still in the Moab area. Um, yeah, so that book is about uh, this guy who has stopped using money for 16 years now, and he has discovered this real sense of freedom. And in some ways, this book was a follow-up in the unsettlers, I asked the question, you know, how far could you take this uh, philosophy and also have children and raise them uh, in a way that doesn't seem to be depriving them? Um, in fact, when I took a Suelo out with me on my book tour five years ago, a lot of people asked that question. They said, I'm inspired by you and your philosophy, but, you know, I've got kids. I'm not going to go live in a cave. I'm not going to have my kids dumpster diving. What can I do? And so the three families that I've profiled here in the Unsettlers, they seem to really have found ways to live according to their ethical beliefs, um, but at the same time not suffer. Like They have real joy in what they've done, and they've found actually like a real sense of abundance by uh, adhering to these uh, ethical beliefs. That's an interesting test, interesting extension, is it? Because... If if you do have kids, and most of us do have kids, and you live in a family, you you, you can't quite go to the extreme that Daniel Suelo does. 
Right, and these people, for example, uh, uh, the family I profile in Utah, excuse me, in Montana, you know, they've been doing this for 30 years now. And so uh, I think a lot of people who try this with kids quickly give up when they say, oh my gosh, I'm going to not have any money and we're not going to be able to send the kids to daycare or private school or college. Um, but this family in Montana who's had a successful organic farm now since the early 80s, you know, they've raised three children and two of them are now in college. And they were sort of the evidence to me that it can be done, that they never compromised on their vision of uh, having their small-scale agriculture and their farm and, and, and a business that doesn't traffic with the global economy. And yet their kids came out pretty well. Like, they're happy and they're smart and they're well-adjusted. So they were a real success story. And there there's some debates. This is Lucy Brieger and Steve Elliott, right? Uh Debates yes, about the, the the merits of private versus public college. And that it, this is this is not to what you would think on off the grid. Of course, these people I don't think are off the grid, but they're they're trying to get get out of the mainstream economy. Right. So they started off the grid um, for about eight or nine years. They were living in a teepee in Montana, and they lived there in the winter even. And their first child was home birthed inside that teepee. So they were really hardcore. Um, and as they got older and they had two more children, they, they built a house which does have, uh, you know, conventional electricity and uh, natural gas. But they stayed so true to their vision of supplying the Missoula community with local in-season organic food that, you know, that was more important to them than the sort of moral purity of being off the grid. And so that was what appealed to me about them, is that they weren't just... Um, purists or so strict that, that they thought that they couldn't use electricity. It was more like um, using a little bit of electricity and, uh, you know, the gasoline for a tractor was a small uh, compromise for the larger goal, which was changing the way that people were eating and getting them to understand and appreciate local food. And, uh, uh, of course, Wendell Berry, uh, I think you quote him, uh, commit to one piece of land and cultivate it. That's, you know, that's uh, go go local and, and go deep. Yeah, this family was very influenced by Wendell Berry. In fact, uh, uh, his book, The Unsettling of America, was uh, not only the book uh, from which I took the title for my book, The Unsettlers, that was also the book that Lucy said uh, really changed her life. She was a graduate student in environmental studies up at the University of Montana, and after reading Wendell Berry, she thought, you know, it, it's not all about signing petitions and saving wilderness for recreation. It's about how do we uh, cultivate food in a way that our species will survive and the rest of the planet will survive, and, and also in a way that, you know, that, that builds community. So yeah, Wendell Berry was huge for for me and for her and for really everyone in this book. What's, what's your interpretation of that uh, phrase, with that title of Wendy, Wendell Berry's, uh, The Unsettling of America? What, what did he mean? Well, he's talking about how the farmland in the Midwest and the South is being sort of taken over by corporations, and the people who have for hundreds of years been cultivating that land are being displaced and leaving this kind of vacuum. Uh, and so I'm actually right. I'm kind of tweaking that a little bit. I'm writing about the people who are now going back into those places. Like uh, I have a family going into and sort of defunct um, 
Germantown in Missouri, and of course the other one is going into Detroit, a defunct industrial town. So these people are settling in those places that were unsettled uh, a generation ago. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Mark Sundin, his new book is The Unsettlers in Search of the Good Life in Today's America. When we come back, uh, I want to meet these uh, three couples, Ethan Hughes and Sarah Wilcox uh, in uh, Missouri, Olivia Hubert and uh, Greg Willerer in uh, Detroit, and uh, we talked a little bit there. We'll learn more about uh, Lucy Rigger and Steve Elliott in uh, Montana. More to come with Mark Sundin following this break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing information, events, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Canadian actor Fiona Reed will be here. She stars as the queen in the new play, The Audience. She talks about what's so interesting about the relationship between the queen and the British prime minister and why writers keep coming back to it. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Monday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, talking uh, this hour with Mark Sundin, author of several previous books, including The Making of Toro and Car Camping, also The Man Who Quit Money. The new book is The Unsettlers, In Search of the Good Life in Today's America. Mark Sundin will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Thursday. That event begins at 7 p.m. And then on Friday, he'll be at Back of Beyond Books in Moab. That event also begins at uh, 7 o'clock, so Thursday and Friday, your chance to interact with uh, Mark Sundin. You can interact with him here uh, by telephone or email, so our our toll-free number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Just want to read this paragraph from the uh, publisher, their, their blurb. On a frigid April night, a classically trained opera singer, five months pregnant, and her husband, a former marine biologist, disembark an Amtrak train in La Plata, Missouri. Assemble two bikes and pedal off into the night, bound for a homestead they've purchased, sight unseen. Meanwhile, a horticulturist heir to the great migration that brought masses of African Americans to Detroit and her husband, a product of the white flight from it, have turned to urban farming to revitalize the blighted city they both love. And near Missoula, Montana, a couple who have been at the forefront of organic farming for decades navigate what it means to live and raise a family ethically. So those are the three uh, the three stories. Mark Sundin, you, um, I think you write that you you had an idea of what you were looking for, and you, and you felt like you'd have your story when you found the people. How did you find the these these the three couples? It was it was pretty complicated, and and the the first thing I did. As I mentioned, was I, I went out looking for off-grid families or dropouts or drop people, and I found that I, that that wasn't quite interesting to me. Um, as I talked about in the previous section about those people who were still tied into the economy, so I started to up the ante and I said, well, okay, I want people who have children but who have no trust fund because or they don't they don't have a fortune um, to start with. Um, I wanted people who didn't have a job off of the land. Uh, they, they weren't working for cash in any way except for what they could reduce from their land. 
I wanted people who didn't have a mortgage because I wanted to see what it would take to not deal with the Wall Street banks. And, of course, I wanted people who weren't making an income by being on a reality TV show or, or having a blog. So that really narrowed it down. Um, another thing that I expected was that I would be in southern Utah or in um, you know California. Those, those are the type of places I figured these people would live. But what I quickly learned was that those places are now really too expensive to, to drop out of the economy or to cut free from the economy because if you got to pay three or $400,000 for a farm, you're probably going to have to get another job. So um, ironically, one of the families I found, the first one you mentioned, uh, Sarah and Ethan out in Missouri, you know, they don't use electricity at all. They don't even use solar power. They don't use computers. They don't use cars. Of course, they don't have a website. And ironically, the way I found them was I posted something on my own Facebook page looking for people who were raising kids off the grid. And through a series of connections, um, I got in touch with their neighbors who then gave me their landline. That's how I finally tracked them down in, in La Plata, mm. Missouri. <laughs> oh, it's called La Plata? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there is, I, I want to have you talk a little bit about them. Uh, first of all, I'll put this out to our listeners. Uh, I'm, I'm curious... Uh, to have you uh, call in or email us, uh, 800-826-1495 or upraxis gmail.com. Have you ever had this impulse? Have, have you tried this? Are you living this way, to, uh, try, trying to get off the mainstream uh, economy? Um, and uh, what what's your experience been? love to hear from you. Uh, so um, Sarah and Ethan, Sarah is a classically trained opera singer. She's five months pregnant. Ethan's a former marine biologist. They make this decision and... Uh, and it's pretty dramatic. They get off the train, assemble their bikes, and off they ride into the night to, to begin this new life. So they went in search of, they they wrote down several, uh, 20 criteria for a home. Right, year-round drinking water source, long-growing season, ample rainfall, existing structures not wild, wired for electricity, no building codes to allow building with natural materials, uh, et cetera, et cetera. One interesting, within biking distance of a college town, I think that would be one of my criteria if I if I did this. <laughs> Um, sure. so, so that narrowed it down considerably. It did. And I mean, you so said that took out most of the Southwest because there wasn't enough rainfall to, to grow food without irrigation. And it took out a lot of the Northern Plains because, uh, the growing season is too short. And, you know, one of the criteria that you didn't mention there was affordable land. So that basically took out everything on the East Coast, the West Coast, and in the Rocky Mountains. So then they narrowed it down to the Midwest and the South, and um, that's what brought them to to Missouri. So this is, it's quite a radical vision. Um, And and so I guess my question before we get in a little uh, deeper into Sarah and Ethan's lives, is this something in your mind that, uh, is this a niche thing, a few people able to do this, or are you suggesting we all try elements of this? Well, I don't expect very many people will choose to live like Ethan and Sarah, uh, partially because it's really hard and you have to volunteer to be poor, you know, financially poor for uh, probably the rest of your life. But uh, what was inspiring to me about them is the fact that, you know, they didn't do this just as a test or um, it wasn't sort of a a quick, shallowly thought-out vision. This was the result of a whole life of, of trying to live uh, nonviolently. They were uh, 
followers of Gandhi. In fact, they had gone and lived on a Gandhian community in France for two years before they decided to form their own here in the U.S. And, you know, the, the connection between simple life and sort of nonviolent direct action is elusive at first. But the way they explained it to me was that, you know, if you're using products like, say, uh, oil and uh, people are being killed for oil in wars, then you're actually using violence in your daily life every time you fill your tank. So for them, they were not going to use any petroleum products, so they don't use cars, which is why they uh, were getting off a train and riding their bike in the middle of the night to get to their new farm. So they're so they are off the grid. Yes, of all of the, yeah. the, the three mm-hmm. families, uh, these ones are completely off the grid. Mm-hmm. Um, the one in Montana, as I mentioned, was off the grid for about ten years, and now they're they have some elements of it. Now, uh, so you went in search of people who are raising uh, kids in, in 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 this lifestyle. So uh, Ethan and Sarah have, I guess, they're the furthest over on that side of the the, the spectrum. How how is it raising kids on in that lifestyle? It seems to be going really well. They have two daughters who are about three and six, and they've set up uh, some. They do some homeschooling, and they've also set up a Waldorf school with some of their neighbors. And you know, they haven't been as like as strict with their children as they are with themselves. So uh, the the children's grandmother lives nearby, and they let the kids you know go in cars and drive to birthday parties. They themselves choose not to drive in cars, but they, I think they make reasonable compromises as well. And, you know, I spent three weeks living with them on this community, and it seems really wonderful the, the amount of time they got to spend with their children, uh, playing, being outside with them. Um, it was really inspiring to me. I know a lot of uh, people who have children that age, who don't get to see them that much because they're always at work or the kids are always at daycare. So, um, I don't know, it, it, it did seem like they had figured something out and found kind of uh, an abundance in terms of the time they get to spend with their children. I want to uh, read something from our, our review. This is an SF gate. This is, um, what's this, John Christensen. Uh, he he frames the, some of the stories in your book as uh, through his lens. He's in San Francisco, and he's uh, talking about distress at the last election and the impulse that uh, some people in blue America have to <laughs> to escape. Um, and and he, he goes on to uh, to say uh, an unsettling irony in, in your book, uh, The Unsettlers Here, that they come to resemble their conservative neighbors, even more as their distrust of a rigged economy and political system deepens. That adds to the unsettling conclusion that it's not at all clear what this unsettling adds up to. And he, this, this comes after he talks about sending out missionaries, quote-unquote, from blue America out into red America. But, uh, for example, uh, Sarah and Ethan, they're, they're living, you know, side by side, so to speak, with, with uh, you know, red Americans. Yeah, that's one of the inspiring um, bits from, from their story, I thought, was that they... You know, after doing all this sort of radical environmental action and Gandhian um, nonviolent direct action, they've become very, very close friends with their next-door neighbors who literally have a, a picture of George W. Bush hanging on the wall. And, you know, they, they learned how to not talk about some things, 
and but to actually to talk about and to share the things that they valued, which was being a good neighbor, trying to live with moral integrity, trying to be close to the land and cultivate their own food on the land. And that turned out to be a a pretty um, strong bond. And I think actually, you know, now with this, this sort of decisiveness in the country, it's, it's pretty important to realize that we do have a lot in common. And um, I, I don't think that, that uh, anyone in a, a red state like Utah is going to appreciate uh, missionaries being sent out from San Francisco to, to change us. So I think that uh, maybe looking for the, the commonalities rather than trying to convert is probably the, the best solution. Hmm. What about this idea that uh, uh, I could see, uh, you know, the, the uh, people in your, your book, uh, Sarah and Ethan, maybe sharing, uh, maybe not in the, quite the same way, but, but sharing a view of a uh, distrust of a uh, rigged economic and political system with their neighbors? Yeah, uh, I think that that is something that both liberals and conservatives see right now. I don't think that's strictly the, 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 the provenance of, of conservatives to say that the economy is rigged. I mean, certainly that's what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have been saying. So I would, uh, um, I would actually say that I chose some of these people because I really liked the streak of libertarianism they had. I, I chose people that weren't accepting any funding from the government or any funding from nonprofits because these people believe that all of that money will eventually dry up once the um, you know when when the corporations sort of have to trim away at their at the bottom line or, or you know tighten their belt, all that money goes away. So they want to be able to exist free from that. I want to move next to uh, Olivia. Do you pronounce it Hubert or Uber? Hubert, yep. Hubert yep. and Olivia uh, Hubert, yep. and, and Greg Willerer. Um, they're interesting. Um, this is an interracial. Uh, a couple, and and as as you point out, this is you know representative of of African American migration and white outflight from from Detroit. They've they've planted themselves in, and Detroit, of course, uh, has is famously troubled. Uh, they planted right. themselves in in that place, and and doing they're doing organic farming in in an urban setting. Yeah, let me just tell you quickly how I arrived in Detroit. Um, I didn't expect to be there. I expected this book to be about the, the rural parts of America. And as I started to research and interview the, the so-called preppers, uh, people who had their bunker full of food and maybe some guns, they were uh, waiting for the collapse. It always seemed like they were afraid that these collapses were going to happen in the cities, and then the sort of chaos would ensue and it would spill out into the country. And when they talked about that collapse, it was, the breakdown of law and order, uh, scarcity, light, pollution. And I started to think, well, you know, that's already happened in America. That's happened in New Orleans. That's happened in Detroit um, as a result of economic and climate catastrophes. So, and I knew that those places weren't abandoned. I knew people were still living there. So I said, well, how do you, instead of um, preparing for the collapse, what does it look like to survive it and to try to um, live within it? So that's what took me to Detroit. And as you mentioned, yeah, this, uh, this couple, Olivia, is black, and she was raised in Detroit. And her husband, Greg, is white, and he was raised in the suburbs. And 
the more I studied them and met with them, I realized that they really told the story of so many American cities, which is to say we had this uh, white flight, and um, the white people were sort of encouraged to leave by housing government, housing policy, and subsidies, and a lot of the cities were left unfunded with uh, a lot of African Americans. Um, they didn't have the sort of uh, community and infrastructure that had been there a generation before. Yeah, and uh, you you uh, you recount. Like, we're all familiar with the, the troubles Detroit has had, and as you point out, uh, Detroit's not the only uh, urban area that's uh, that's had a lot of troubles. One example you'd given your book the, near the end, uh, just to just to illustrate uh, a fairly famous example of a, a black woman, young black woman, her car breaks down. She's scared, I guess, uh, pounds on the door for help and, and gets shot by the homeowner. Yeah, that's something that happened while I was visiting. And I was, in a, I was actually in Dearborn, which is a suburb of, of Detroit. And, you know, that was something that I had to include in this book, or, or that, I guess, the racism that we find still in America, where... Uh, when black people are killed, there's often not the same system of justice uh, that white people receive. In, in other words, a lot of those crimes go unsolved or unpunished. In this case, I believe that, that crime was uh, punished, and that guy did go to prison for that. But nonetheless, there is this feeling of among black Detroiters that, uh, that they're afraid that, that their life could be taken from them at any minute. What what are uh, Olivia, what are their goals, Olivia and, and Greg? What what are they trying to accomplish here? What's their philosophy? Well, first of all, you know, they are earning a living farming on abandoned lots in downtown Detroit. So they are trying to show that it can be done, that it can be sustainable, it can be organic, that they can teach people uh, how to eat, in a sense, them that they don't need to buy all their food from grocery stores and have it all shipped in from Mexico. So in that way, their goals are very similar to organic farmers everywhere else in the country. Uh, being in Detroit uh, and, and being African-American, they have some more specific goals um, having to do with economic self-sufficiency and dismantling racism. You know, they want to prove uh, that they can start a business and they could basically be entrepreneurs for the, that black community, which is desperately in need of a local economy because the big manufacturing sector has just has left, right? There's, there's not very many uh, auto jobs anymore. So they are trying to build black businesses, and theirs is one of them. And they, they, they seem to be distrustful of, uh, as they might describe it, uh, hipsters who are flocking to Detroit wanting to be part of the scene and play a role in the story of urban renewable renewal. Of course, that, there, there is that, that scene, and, and people who are doing that to come out of good motives. They want to be part of a renewal, right? But uh, Libby and Greg kind of look a little bit askance at that, I believe. Yeah, and again, that gets back to the race issue. Um, most of the so-called hipsters are going to be white, middle-class, college-educated people. And in a lot of uh, ways, they're doing good things by coming to Detroit. Uh, by starting up businesses or just bringing cultural and economic activity. But a lot of them treat Detroit uh, as if 
the uh, frontier, and they're the pioneers, which is to say, as if no one lives there already. And of course, that's pretty problematic to these black families that have been there for three or four generations and have suffered through all of this discrimination and the sort of abandonment of the uh, the auto industry. And it can be pretty galling for um, these white folks to show up and say, hey, we're here to save you. And, and specifically with urban farming, uh, they noticed that the, a lot of the grant money that was coming into Detroit was being given to white urban farming outfits, whereas black families that had been growing their own food for decades, more out of necessity than, than out of any kind of political uh, philosophy, they were being passed over for that money. So yeah, there is that uh, a little bit of resentment of the, the Johnny-come-lately hipsters who think they're saving Detroit. And again, Olivia and Greg, your criteria was uh, people raising kids while pursuing their, uh, you know, their their dreams of a of a uh, radical simplicity. Uh, how how are they doing? How are their kids doing? Olivia and Greg. They just have one daughter, one and daughter. I, I just saw her uh, last weekend. I was out there doing my book event, and she's doing great at this point. You know, the the daughter is so young that they haven't had to worry about school yet, so a lot remains to be seen. But you know they're really uh, they're planning to homeschool her uh, right there on their on their uh, old house in the heart of Detroit. So the so far so good. And of course the the major obstacles of parenting will come later when they start having to worry about schooling and college. I'd like to maybe place the the, the three uh, couples that you talk to on this continuum. You know, from most pure quote unquote. Uh, you know you kind of making a judgment there, but I don't mean to, uh, which would be maybe Sarah and Ethan in, in Missouri, who talk about if you use oil in any way, shape, or form, you're contributing to violence, for example. They're most off the grid. And then you get to uh, Olivia and Greg in Detroit, and they're less so, and uh, and uh, Montana maybe equally less so. Uh, what would you say about that continuum that... Uh, I don't know what Sarah and Ethan would think about uh, Olivia and Greg. Right, I think, uh, well, I happen to know because they've read the book. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, they, and they, they think that, that the Detroit family is great. Um, again, uh, what, what interested me about Ethan and Sarah was that they were willing to take it all the way in terms of we're going to absolutely boycott these unethical products. Um, and then what interested me about Detroit was, you know, how can we do this post-collapse, and what element, um, or how does the element of race play into this? Is, is the off-grid movement just only white people, which is kind of what I had expected when I went out to to write this book. Um, and what interested me, me most about Steve and Lucy in Montana was the fact that they had gone from that very radical off-grid living in a teepee um, to now, where they do have uh, a house, and they have electricity, they have solar panels, they have tractors, and they have a car that runs on biodiesel. Um, so in some ways, they have a very comfortable life that looks like a success, even by the most conventional American standards. And they've, they've got the American dream. They've got 80 acres of beautiful farmland up in the Bitterroot Valley. And yet, I don't feel like they've compromised. I feel like they have stayed true to this very radical idea of small-scale farming, local economy, and 
very small carbon footprint. So, I, again, I was more interested in the people that had a, uh, a positive vision as opposed to people who are just saying, no, I'm not going to use this product. Hmm. Before we take another break, I, uh, I want to ask you briefly, parenthetically, you, you, you did talk to some preppers, did you? You went in search of some preppers? I did. I, I met a couple, but most of, mostly it was just research and, and reading the books and the blogs about them. And uh, there's a stereotype, right? Um, you know, right. mildly crazy, um, you know, very eccentric. Of course, you know, if, if the apocalypse happens, I'm hoping I live next to a prepper, but uh, <laughs> how, did you, how did you find them? What, uh, what were they like, the people you talked to? Well, I was, uh, I, I really admired the self-sufficiency. Um, I did feel like there was the, the deepest motivation was fear, and that wasn't uh, as interesting to me as uh, being motivated by hope. Um, one thing that Olivia said in, in Detroit when we were talking about preppers, she said that, you know, those people who are stocking their bunkers with food from the big box chain stores, you know, they're just actually uh, hastening the apocalypse because they're not doing anything to prevent it. And that kind of, in a nutshell, explained why I was more interested in her than I was in the preppers. Uh, to me, there's something fatalistic or, or depressing about saying, okay, everything's going to collapse, but I'm going to have my little fortress when that happens. I was much more interested in the people who were trying to take an active role in preventing that collapse. We're talking with uh, Mark Sundin, if you just joined us. His new book is The Unsettlers in Search of the Good Life in Today's America. And uh, he is uh, coming to uh, Utah for a couple of events this week. Uh, he will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on Thursday. That event begins at 7 p.m. Then uh, Friday night at 7, uh, back of Beyond Books in Moab is where he'll uh, be. Uh, I want to uh, talk about the, the couple in uh, Montana, a little more about them. Um, Lucy Brieger and Steve Elliott and uh, more uh, following this break. Jan Duszek was among the great pianists of the early 1800s, and Mr. Duszek believed himself to be not just talented, but handsome. He turned the piano so audiences could see his favorite part of his face. More about the handsome face and the lovely music of Jan Duszek on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us Monday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jeff Smith, science reporter for Utah Public Radio, and my job is to keep you informed about issues concerning human health, the environment, and scientific breakthroughs. If you have any comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear them. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag IMUPR. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with Mark Sundin. He is author most recently of The Unsettlers, In Search of the Good Life in Today's America. Faced with climate change, the rise of the 1%, and uh, suffocating 24-7 work culture, uh, many Americans are yearning for the simple life. 
And a question that Mark Sundin asks in this book, is it actually possible not only to walk away from modern conveniences, which would become dependent, but to adopt a sustainable, ethical, and authentic way of life? And he uh, features three couples who are searching for this way of life, radical simplicity, Mark Sundin uh, calls it. And uh, I want to uh, talk about this couple in Montana. First of all, Mark Sundin, um, you, you've lived this a little bit in, in, in your life. Uh, for example, uh, you, you're quoted in the book, um, your wife Cedar hailed from a separate America, and as I fell in love with her, you say I fell in love with it, too. Tell me about your your wife's America. How, she was yeah, she, she was raised, she was raised by what would be called back to the land hippies uh, up in northern Montana. She actually lived in a barn for a while, with, and um, they had a wood stove for all the cooking and heating. So she's very familiar with this. In fact, as I was writing the book, she kept saying like she kept saying things like some of this stuff's not that interesting. I mean, everyone does this. And I'm like, well, no, not everyone does this, but you do. Um, and so when we were still living up in Missoula, we had a very large garden, and we grew a lot of our own food. And um, she got me into bicycle commuting. Uh, I was going into town seven miles a day, and she convinced me I didn't need to drive. And that ended up being something I really loved, and I still do now. So and, you know, during the process of writing this book, we got married, and so in a lot of ways, the personal aspect of this book was finding the families that were a blueprint for us, or, you know, for me. Like, how could we live together and be married and potentially have children and still feel like we're living an ethical life? This goes, I mean, this has roots, um, you know, in some previous works, and in your acknowledgments, you you put some authors and books that shaped your thinking, as you put it. Uh, one of those books, Living the Good Life by Helen and Scott Nearing. R- remind us uh, about them and what their movement was. Or is, I yeah, guess. Yeah, so Helen and Scott Nearing, uh, they were sort of the original back-to-the-landers, in the sense he was a, a very radical college professor who was blacklisted because of uh, his anti-war stance during World War One, And so in the 1930s, he couldn't get a job. He and his wife I moved to Vermont. They built a homestead out of local stone. They ate vegetarian. They grew their own food, and they bartered. And they wrote a book called Living the Good Life, which they published in 1954, and almost nobody read it. And then in 1970, it was republished, and it sold half a million copies, and it sort of became the Bible for the the hippies and the, the back-to-the-landers of the 1970s. And um, they're very similar to Ethan and Sarah in terms of they want to simultaneously uh, boycott any kind of industry that they think is destructive, but also, you know, find work with uh, that they find meaningful. So that might be building or growing, gardening, cooking, uh, doing things with your hands, being outside. Um, so there's, there's, there's both of those elements. One is the ethical boycott. Two is the finding a way to spend your day, which gives you some joy. So tell me a little bit more about Lucy Brieger and Steve Elliott. Uh, I believe you've you lived up in Montana while you were finishing this book? Yeah, they were actually the closest to me. They were friends of a friend, and they lived about 40 miles down the road from me. Um, they have an organic farm that they started in the 80s, and they were the pioneers of organic farming. You know, the, the word organic had not even really uh, come into common usage yet. So they were doing this stuff... Um, and trying to figure out how to get people to buy this food. 
and to eat it. And, you know, for them, it didn't start as, as a snobby foodie type of thing, right? This wasn't about let's get people fancier food. It was let's change the means of production so that we're no longer relying on pesticides and oil to bring us our food from California or Mexico. And uh, they're so committed to this vision, ironically, that um, eventually they, they stopped certifying organic. Once, you know, the organic certification caught up with them, and they decided it was too much red tape and bureaucratic hassles, so they stopped certifying, and they called what they're doing homegrown now. So very strong in their, in their vision and their passion and very unwilling to compromise. This is about uh, three minutes left. I want to bring this back to to, to you. This is a, also a personal quest, right? Uh, so, um, the, the impulse not so much to go off the grid, but to disconnect as much as possible from the mainstream economy. Did, um, is that something you tried to do? What, what, what do you? Take it is. On? Yeah, I've I've taken it on in, in ways I guess big and small, from you know refinancing my house with a, a local credit union, so I didn't have to write that check to Bank of America, um, you know, doing as much as I can to, to not use a car and to, to bicycle commute and, um, you know, growing my own food when, when possible. But ultimately, like, I found this is about, you know, finding meaningful work. That's really what defines these people. They, uh, they wouldn't be able to do this if they spent 40 or 60 hours a week doing something they hated. Rather, it's like you find the work that you love, and then a lot of those material needs and anxieties might fall away. So for me, um, as soon as I finished writing this book, the first thing I did was I went down to Moab and volunteered to build a straw bale house. And this was like pretty out of character for me because I wasn't getting paid. I didn't have a magazine assignment. But I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to learn how to build, and I want to be outside. And I want to do this work so someday I can build on my own land. And uh, that was kind of a big turning point for me, to just pursue the thing I, I wanted and not worry about the money. Hmm. And so uh, so what's next? So the, you've, you've done the... That's a good question. I've got a couple more, uh, about a full month of touring for this book. Um, I spent most of the fall up in Standing Rock uh, reporting on the the resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline for Outside Magazine. So it looks like with uh, Trump's recent decision that the fight is still on, that, that uh, they're still going to try to push this pipeline through, and I guarantee that the natives are not going to take it lying down. So I imagine I'll be back up there come March or April. Do you, uh, by the way, at the, the end here, do you, do you, when you get back to Mob, do you still check in with uh, Daniel Suelo? I do. Um, he's actually at this point living in uh, near Grand Junction, Colorado. Oh, okay. He's, he's taking care of his elderly mother. Um, but I'm going to see him uh, on Wednesday because I'm going to do an event there in, in Fruita, Colorado. So I will see him. Yeah. Yeah, he's a fascinating, uh, fascinating person because he's. I mean, he's he's taken it, you know, to eleven, as they they would say. He's taken it to the extreme. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. He's he's still the most uh, extreme and most sort of radical in this anti-materialistic movement.
Uh, by the way, he's the subject of the previous book, The Man Who Quit Money. Uh, the current book of Mark Sundin is The Unsettlers, In Search of the Good Life in Today's America. And Mark Sundin will be in Salt Lake City on Thursday. An event at the King's English Bookshop starts at 7 p.m. Then on Friday in Moab at Back of Beyond Books, that event starts at 7 p.m. as well. Mark Sundin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Warren Buffett, billionaire investor, philanthropist, connoisseur of Oreos and Cherry Coke. Oh, and also? He is as competitive as they come and that he doesn't like to lose, but he plays fair. I'm Kai Rizdal. A new HBO documentary, Becoming Warren Buffett, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. The woman was on the ground and the bull was tossing her in the air and back on the ground. And where were you? I was right on the other side of the fence, but the fence was electric. Why is it that certain people will risk their lives for a stranger? I went ahead and just climbed through the fence. While others won't. My neighbors would not help me. That question this week on Radiolab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan.